Hi, dear listener. Sarah Hammer speaking. Welcome to the Learning Day, a journey to explore how we can integrate learning in our everyday lives. Can you recall a moment when you wanted to ask a question but refrained from doing so? Maybe at a conference, a class or workshop, or even on a one-on-one conversation. Maybe you felt that the question was stupid or that the other person had better things to do than to answer it. I certainly have, and I know that I've missed many learning opportunities for that reason. Do you feel the same? If yes, this episode is for you. Today's guest is Stephanie Truth. Steph asks questions for a living, and she's also incredibly curious. We talk about how curiosity can drive your learning, how absorbing someone else's knowledge can be a superpower, and practical tips and tricks to have more meaningful conversations and to learn from them. Hope you enjoy our chat. Hi, Steph. Hi, Sarah. How are you doing? I'm doing well today. How are you? I'm great. I know you were um, fresh from a big trip, so maybe a yeah. little bit jet lagged. <laughs> I, I want to say somewhat jet lagged. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you'll be awesome today. Uh, thank you so much for accepting this invitation. I'm really glad you you're here. We met um, in a more like formal uh, learning experience at the New Digital School. I've had really interesting conversations with you, and I will jump right in by asking you to tell us about this very specific interest you have, which is jewelry making. <laughs> uh, sure. Uh, I guess I'll start from the beginning. So feel free to cut me off if it gets too long. Um, I guess it was, well, um, I think it started in, ser in seriousness. Like when I was a kid, my mother taught me how to make beads and stuff from paper strips. And um, But I think in more seriousness, when I was in my or 15 years old or so, so my I was living with my aunt at the time because I was studying overseas. She had a friend um, who's from Hong Kong and um, and was going back for the summer holidays. And she left me a whole box of beads and several different types of pliers. And uh, being curious as I was like, oh, what do you do with this? And so before I was making earrings, I was making necklaces like from wire. Um, and I think that was when I really started paying attention to, to making things. And I really enjoyed it. Uh, fast forward a few years into the future, um, I wanted to make more serious stuff. And I happened to be, uh, well, without going too deep into all my journeys, um, I was at that time um, doing a part-time work at university that I used to study at. And one of the things that was kind of cool when you are university staff is that you get um, a discount on all the short courses that you can do. So I did two things. I decided to, to take a silversmithing course and to learn uh, to be a barista, <laughs> two completely different things. Um, it, it turns out that this, uh, uh, so the smithing was quite a lot of fun. Um, and I continued just, you know, more as a hobby and an amateur, um, had a little shop for a little while. And when I did that sort of stuff and, and just uh, honing my skills, um, after the course was over, I took up more lessons with the teacher who um, taught me how to do things like enameling, which is apparently uh, getting to be a lost art. Um, so yeah, that, that's probably the short story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. From what you said, um, I noticed that it was just, you saw an opportunity, really didn't think much about it 
uh, as a kid and yeah it was your curiosity that guided you right I, I think that's a fair thing to say it's like how does this work and what can I do with it um are quite often I guess the questions that I I do ask myself but I mean like from a more serious perspective going forward as an adult I really like I love jewelry still because I think it is um it's something that is a part of the human society where we used to decorate ourselves and we've always um, decorated ourselves and how people choose to decorate themselves says a lot about the personality. So having this a relatively good knowledge of materials and jewelry and also styles can tell me a lot about a person by what they wear. So it's turned out to be an unexpectedly useful skill professionally. Yes. We'll get into that very soon. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, you, you talked about being curious and uh, I was doing my research and I found um, online on your bios that you've also explored other uh, interests like edible flowers, perfumes, uh, many different languages. What is the role of curiosity in your day to day? Oh, oh goodness. I don't know if... I don't know how to answer that question because I feel that's so fundamental to who I am. Um, I'm, I'm just, I've always wanted to just inhale knowledge. I guess it started as a kid, like I would inhale books. <laughs> and But I also knew very well that you can't just read something and expect to know how it functions. Um, if it says something, one of my favorite child uh, books as a child was, um, my, my mother you know, brought back a lot of books and um, from from her teaching days, my mother was a teacher, and I had there's a series of quite thick books, and there were twelve of them. And my favorite book was book number five, which was things to make and do. Um, so I would read a lot of things. I would read all the books, but I'd still come back to make things. And I think, regardless of what it is, if it happened to be perfumes or flowers. I think I like the idea that if I got good at something, it would inform other parts of my knowledge. <laughs> um, the edible flowers thing was kind of by absolute chance. I was at a conference um, in just off the island of Vancouver, off an island of Vancouver, and it was in a at a location where there was a self-contained organic farm, and they had all kinds of flowers. And I didn't know at that point that you could grow flowers you could eat. And so I just got all into it and started doing my own investigation and started growing some. <laughs> uh, it's like, oh, I could use this to flavor. Well, actually, flowers generally don't flavor very much. They just look very pretty. So most of the flowers that you do eat, um, uh, some of them are very peppery that you can put in salads. Um, others are mostly very pretty. And when you add to a salad, it adds color and it just makes it beautiful. Yeah, I've recently discovered that uh flowers could be eaten uh it's not it's not uh, something that has been in my life for a long time <laughs> isn't it funny <laughs> yeah it is it is uh and it, i don't know maybe we associate those bright colors as something that it's poisonous and so that you shouldn't eat and <laughs> so yeah it's interesting yeah that's quite a lot and i didn't end up growing that many edible flowers in the end um so it's just because it wasn't possible but yeah um I still dream of one day where I could grow all the flowers I could eat. Um, although, you know, the chances of eating them are, are quite fair. If you end up, put, I put in, end up putting them in salads um, or just like as a as a garnish. You said something that was really interesting and I think is interesting for, for our listeners. Um, you said something like uh, 
reading something is not enough, like you need to make it, something like that. I, I didn't quite um, capture the, the sentence, but can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, hmm. I think knowledge is something that is interesting. I don't, I think when you learn something just by reading about it, that's just the first step. Um, reading something and actually doing it, you learn something different when you actually act on what you read. Um, I guess so like, you know, you asked me about food earlier and that's exactly what I'm like. You can read a recipe, you wouldn't know how to cook it unless you've actually tried it. Um, and so it's one of those things where for me, a complete, complete idea of learning, no, no matter how many medium articles you read, if you don't put it into practice, you haven't really learned. Um, and, and that's the way that I guess... Uh, there's a proliferation of medium articles these days, which is great. Um, lots of knowledge are being shared and shared freely. Um, but until such time as we get to put things to practice, um, we're only partially learning. Um, so there's so much in the learning of actually the act of doing and the act of practicing, um, which I think is massively important. And which is also why whenever I teach and whenever I run workshops, um, most of my workshops are very hands-on because for me, if you don't try something, you wouldn't really learn it. Absolutely, I agree. I, I've certainly suffered from the medium article. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know what's the word for that. <laughs> Virus? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and there's so much online that uh, it, it's it's sometimes difficult to filter and... and um, understand who's who's right because then mm. there are contradictory uh, mm -hmm. opinions and it's only until you actually do it and you create your own opinions that um yeah you understand it exactly and i think as a, i'm speaking i guess somebody like from a research background um being aware of the circumstances where you create the opportunity to do something like the circumstances um, I might have to give an example. So, for example, if you are working in a big company and you do a project there, it would be very different than if you work at a smaller company and do a project there. And even though you learn one thing that might work in one context, may not work in another. So um, I found that just in my past life by inserting yourself in different contexts and circumstances is where you will get the richest experience because even though you know on paper one method sounds great but it may only work in one context um i feel like the danger that we have sometimes is when people write these articles is they think that they're right um, because it's only true for what they've done in their own context um so that that's always a challenge it's always something to keep in mind it's good to get a varied set ourselves up for varied experiences um, sometimes they would get uncomfortable, but um, mm -hmm. I think it's also how we learn best, just being conscious of that. So you've already started talking about your past life and your past experiences. Um, so I'm going, I'm going there now. Can you tell us a little bit about your path? I know you started in computer science, right? That's correct. Um, it's not where I always thought I would start um, because I spent a good chunk of my teenagehood being a, well, kind of musician. I played mostly through school, but a lot of stuff. And I didn't, for one, thought that I would end up in computing. Um, if anything, I ended up in computing because I was actually good at programming sounds. And I thought, oh, yeah, this tech thing, I'm pretty sure I can work it out. <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, I, I I guess it wasn't, so it wasn't an intentional thing. And, I, you know, looking back, I'm not how 
I'm pretty sure not much of my life was purely intentional. It's really about where my curiosity led me. But it occurred to me at the time that here is a study of that creates tools and looking forward into the future, understanding how to create tooling um, might be very useful generally. And then I can go from there. I guess what I didn't realize was that there's a whole field of study out there um, that looks at how usable and understandable this tooling is. And I guess um, it's like, like the short path through. I mean, I was I spent quite some time as a developer. I um, spent a few years developing sort of backend systems, databases, um, programming interfaces to databases. Um, and then I realized that I quite like the front end stuff. Like I quite like making interfaces, mostly because it's it's where you interact with the brain of a system. So like, you know, is that interface between the human and, and what the computer can do? And how do you communicate what the computer can do? And what how do you turn what the human wants to do into what the computer can do? <laughs> and so I got fascinated by that. And um, mostly, luckily for me, around that time is when... Um, it was getting easier to create interfaces on the web. And so that was my specialty for a while. Um, then I guess like a long journey short, I, I've always been fascinated by how things are usable or not. And uh, the first opportunity I get to pivot in my career, I took it. And and that's where I was. I started being, I started calling myself a user experience specialist. And then I decided I really, really wanted to hone my research skills. So I focused um, very much on that, the first opportunity I had. Um, and that's more or less the, my journey in a sh- my sort of like 20 year career <laughs> yeah. in, in a few minutes. I like what you said about, um, you understood that um, computer science or development was a way to create tools and that could be a good opportunity for the future. You weren't necessarily thinking, oh, this is a good job. You were more looking for a skill that was useful and and maybe that is generally my approach and the reason why I think I end up doing so many random things that appear to sound disconnected was mostly I I have a fascination in learning new skills um I dream one day if one of the skills I would really love um which is probably also a dying art is I would love to know how to fix watches um again really technical and it, I'm probably getting too old for that because I, my eyesight is probably failing. Um, but it's just like the, just the how things work in the world um, and and just having the capacity as a human to understand and to fix things. I guess, I guess that's where it, where it comes from. Um, it's really, for me, yeah, it's like a, a, I'm like trying to have a lifetime of collecting skills. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good goal. Yeah. I guess so. There's a there's a character in a TV series called Heroes. Do you remember? No, I don't think I know that series. Uh, it's an American series from um, I want to say around 2006 to 2010. I've got Wikipedia in front of me, so uh, <laughs> there's this there's this um, villain in Heroes. His name was Siler, and. Um, Sil- what Sila does is his superpower. He um, absorbs other people's superpowers. Um, mm. And some days I think like, hmm, maybe I'm just turning into Sila and I'm just like <laughs> absorbing other people's skills. <laughs> well, um, if you're doing that, just don't use it as a villain, please. Use it as the good person. <laughs> yeah, uh, in theory. <laughs> <laughs> 
well, watch out. <laughs> People, if you're listening. <laughs> you're talking about skills, and I'm going to use that to move into the topic of this podcast, which is asking questions. Okay. I decided to um, explore this topic because I feel like sometimes we don't ask questions just because we feel embarrassed or we feel like we don't have enough to say or ask that we might feel that we are just going to make fools of ourselves um, and we miss a lot of opportunities. Mm. And, and so I wanted to talk to someone that basically asks questions for a living because um, <laughs> as a design researcher, uh, that's what you do. Like yes. You are hired to ask questions and yes. to um, take conclusions out of them. And so what is the role of questions in your day-to-day -day life? It's the foundation, the basis for everything that I do, um, mostly because if without the skills to ask good questions, you would get the wrong answers. And mm. so quite a lot of the time, um, what sort of like a senior researcher is what I do, somebody might have a question for me to ask, but often I would need to be the one to say, actually, is that the right question? Um, uh, I'm struggling to think of an example right now without like infringing on NDA. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, uh, so maybe let make, let's make this a more generic thing. Um, so for example, uh, like, you know, if you're working for businesses, they're usually wondering how much, you know, people would pay for a service and human beings, we are terrible at judging how much something is worth. And so instead of asking how much would you pay, the question should really be relative to the value of you see something else. So for example, you're thinking like, how much would you pay to, to read a newspaper online or a magazine online? Um, the question might well be, okay, so you're already paying for um, streaming services for movies. You're already paying for streaming services for music. How much is that worth to you? next to a, you know, a magazine content. And so that's called like a, uh, the art of framing the question in such a way that you can get adequate answers that you can use. Because, um, so there's a lot of psychology in that, I would say, um, just understanding things like what humans are good at or bad at. So asking a question like, how much would you pay is, is too arbitrary because we have nothing to compare to. Um, and so just having that knowledge of how you frame that question, I guess, is, is a lot of what I do. Um, so I interpret the questions people have through a business lens and then I reform it into questions that I can actually get as evidence so that we can act upon it um, as an organization or business. Um, but what you asked, what you said earlier is probably a little bit more general. I think you were asking me about, um, you know, we don't ask questions and so we missed the opportunity. Um, I, I find that fascinating. I guess it's never really, so maybe I can t tell you a sort of a, a little background story um, of how I got my job uh, <laughs> a few years ago. I'm, I, I ended up as a, as a researcher um, at um, um, email marketing company, mostly because the um, design director there knew me from a past um, past endeavor and said hey uh, you, you're somebody who seems to know how to talk to everyone I, I, I like to hire you for this role to work for us and I, that shocked me at the time because I never thought of myself as somebody who could make small talk I'm an introvert like given any day you'll find myself not talking to anybody but um, as it turns out it seems easy for me to, for people to talk to me now I've decided not to 
think too much about it. But over time, as I'm starting to teach other people how to ask questions, it has occurred to me that it is a skill. Um, it is a skill that I might have unconsciously honed, but for me to be conscious of it now, I, I start actually using it more like a superpower, if you like. And so the craft of asking questions really is you have to start thinking about, well, there's, there's two place, two ways you can think about it. The mistake I've seen people make, not at conferences only, but also in professional life, is that you're asking a question because you're trying to sound smart and you're making that conversation about you. When you're a researcher or when you are just trying to keep the, an open mind about um, what you want to learn, focus on, focus on the fact that your question is about advancing the discourse, um, advancing the, the intellectual thinking about the conversation, focus on, focus on what makes us all better rather than thinking about whether you're smart or not. And for me, that's actually been a saving grace because I, I'm not, um, I'm not, I would consider myself the most confident person. Um, so there will be times where I'm, you know, like I don't feel very smart, but I'm mostly, if I put my focus on somebody else, I naturally, I just find that I naturally ask good questions because I'm curious and I want to know about them. I want to know about what they know. So if you think in terms of stealing somebody else's skill set or stealing <laughs> someone else's knowledge, that's where you're coming from when you ask questions, right? You're trying to suck in the knowledge, inhale the knowledge that somebody else has. Um, and that's usually, for me, a starting point. As for which questions to ask, um, there are some very good frameworks out there to help people get started. But sometimes I feel like if you... If you have that, it becomes a little unnatural, but it's good to know when you're a researcher to have some boxes to tick. There is a very good article called 17 Types of Interviewing Questions by Steve Portugal, and he basically has a list of questions that you can use to ask to collect context and details, probing things about what's unsaid. So it's a very useful list as a checklist. Um, Steve Portugal himself is um, a very accomplished qualitative researcher, so he, he's pretty amazing. I use that list a lot, and I use that list a lot when I talk to my students about how they can practice asking different types of questions. So that's a useful thing. The other, the other emphasis I have is one of the easy ways to just ask somebody else is to focus on their story, like try and get them to tell you a story about them. Um, and, and that can be quite easy. Ask why, ask how, ask at that time, what happened? And just starting to pay attention to somebody else. Um, and you find that the conversation could flow pretty easily. And before long, somebody else will be telling you their life story. And people do like talking about themselves. Most people, right? I think so. It's a story that, that they control. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel. I'm, I'm talking uh, from my own experience. I don't necessarily like to sell myself, but I, I don't mind talking about myself because... No one else knows more about that topic than I do. Um, <laughs> so I'm the expert of myself. Most, yes, most exactly. Um, um, I've also found like some of my researcher friends from way back, we, we randomly talk about this. We've uh, admitted to practicing our skills on taxi drivers. Um, we have often really amazing stories. Um, or, you know, or your companion in, on the bus or on a train. <laughs> so, like, you know, focus on one thing and use that as a basis to understand their backstory. And it's a skill that you can practice. 
oddly enough, it sounds it, so, it can sound a little creepy, but you know, you come with it with good intentions and you're just trying to understand another human being. And what you said about practicing on, on taxi drivers or other people, you, you can also do that with your friends, with your family. Like it, it doesn't need to be like this very nerve wracking situation where you are at an event or you are in a class or yeah, you're talking to a work uh, colleague. Like it can be someone you're comfortable with. Just practice mm -hmm. asking a question that maybe you wouldn't ask in a normal situation. It's amazing how little we pay attention to our family members when we are with them. It's amazing how little we spend the time to understand their story because we take them for granted all the time. I've just visited my parents, which is also why I'm super jet lagged. They're on the other side of the planet near the equator. And I'm, my father was telling me stories I have heard before, but I find myself thinking, he's telling stories which I might not find in a book. So he was talking about the, the aftermath of the Second World War, because my parents were born just after the war. And for example, what happened um, with the, um, the communist regimes um, around the area and things like curfews in his, you know, it was early childhood. And I'm thinking, these are stories that probably don't get written down. And so I'm trying to get him to write them down. <laughs> and I realized that I'm going to have to use all my skills, um, not only as a, as a researcher, more than just a, a curious daughter. I really need to be somebody who will really hone my questions for him to get the right story out. Because um, when something is such a, like an old narrative, he might have retold the story several times, so what might be true versus what his experience is. So I'll need to use all my skills to make that differentiation. Well, there's there's a very specific example of how you can use your skills yeah. uh, as a researcher for a day-to-day -day skill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, although that's that's a very that's not that's not something that happens every day that you're you're um, working with your parents to write down such a what they know. Story. Yeah, I would question why not because like all our parents, I mean, we, like I said, we take our family for granted to some degree, and I, I regret not having used my skills, for example, to talk about my with my grandmother um, for her stories on the Second World War. And I, I actually, I think she didn't want to tell the story because I think to some degree it was too traumatic. Um, so there are examples like day to day where you could use these questions, like, like I said, practice them, um, but, but use these skills with people closest to you and just like giving them the time and attention that you would give somebody else. Now in, now in a more general sense, when you ask a question that you really, you ask a question that you really mean, you're not just making small talk because we're not talking about small talk here. Um, a question that you that you mean and you actually listen, it's very likely that you'll get something surprising. <laughs> oh yes, absolutely, absolutely. Can you can you remember any examples of how that happening? I'm not sure. I guess the reason why I struggle with that question is because. I usually ask questions without presuming what I'm going to get. I, I feel like that's the purity of when you ask a question for active listening. So if you look at, I love to make this comparison again when I, when I teach people about interviewing techniques. If you listen carefully, say, to a journalist on TV or radio and how they ask questions, sometimes they make me crazy because they're asking questions to elicit certain types of responses. As a researcher and as a proper human being with an open mind, 
that is not what you should do. <laughs> um, I feel like there is so much space when you ask a question genuinely in order to have answers that come back that you don't expect. So I'm not sure if that answered your question. <laughs> It was even better. <laughs> <laughs> you talked about assumptions. And when you are, you know, when you really want to learn something from someone, you need to clear yourself from from your previous biases. Biases, mm. exactly. Which is not easy. Um, how how do you manage to practice that or do that in your in your practice? Good question. Um, hmm. I think in part of it is just being exposed to the world as much as possible and allowing, again, keeping an open mind. But one of the, well, it's good to read up on biases for one thing. It's like, there's a whole, there's a whole lot of knowledge out there um, written down about biases. And whenever I ask a proper psychologist, you know, what biases should I listen to? There, there's a couple of good medium articles, but the Wikipedia um, entry on biases is also pretty good. Um, generally, we just need to, I mean, like in a, in a more general term, just understanding where you have come from and how you form your opinions about the world is that first step. Like what contributes to your biases, like being aware of who you are and, and why you know you think a certain way. I think that's the, the first most the first step. And after that is being able to understand the cultural context where you grew up and what how you form your opinions, uh, what's important to you and why. Those things come into play because when you speak to somebody coming from a completely different background, you need to understand that what you feel is not necessarily, what, what they feel is just as valid as yours. And, and just being aware of that moment when you are inclined to judge somebody. Um, and so I feel that It, it is a lot of self-examination to begin with. I think just taking the time to be comfortable with who you are um, and understanding that you—that's the word, the place you've come from—and um, then being able to accept somebody coming from a different place. That—that that is the key. I feel like it, for all the terms you read out there about biases, that's the fundamental meaning of the difference that you—that um, somebody else might come from a different context and see the world differently from you. I think for me. I, I don't feel I can escape from biases, but I can be aware of them. Exactly. Um, um, professionally, as researchers, what we usually do is we have multiple people listening to the evidence. And the idea is the more people you have processing the story that comes out from research, processing the data that comes out from research, is that you sort of cancel out each other's biases. Um, and that's one technique that we use um, professionally when we deal with evidence. When you have one-to-one -one conversation, it's a lot harder. <laughs> But being, like you said, being aware of your own biases is absolutely the first step. Yeah. But I, I suppose that in more in a one-to-one -one conversation, not in a professional, well, can be a professional setting, but sometimes putting your own lenses to the topic, it's useful. Because um, you might, might make a completely different interpretation from what the person meant. Uh, and my, that might be interesting. That might lead to new insights. Um, but you need to use that carefully in a way. Um, and if you are working with for that person, as usually a design researcher, you are working for the user or for the, the, the person um, participating in the service or whatever, um, you should check it with them in a way like 
that happened to me that I made a completely different interpretation from what the person meant mm. and because I checked it with them. I, I maybe create a new, new insight on that person mm. and they thought, oh, actually, that's not what I meant, but that's interesting. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe there's something there on how these misinterpretations can lead to new things. In the, in the course of running interviews, there is also a thing that I do very, very frequently, which is to verify that I've heard something correctly and I say it back to the participant or the interviewee in the way I understood what they have said and let them confirm it with me. Um, and that, that is actually a formal thing that we should do as a, as a researcher, which is con constantly confirm that we've heard the right thing. Um, there are other ways you do it. You can get them to um, express things, get the participants to write things down. So you have things in their own words. But yeah, I, I frequently like double check that I've interpret things correctly. It I find that so usually as a researcher in my case, um, I usually have my colleagues listening into a, a conversation. Mm -hmm. And the more I clarify, the more there is uh, robustness in the evidence because it means that there's less misunderstanding. Um, so because my colleague was listening into the conversation with me and the participant, they have to interpret what the participant says, but they also have to interpret why I'm asking the question a certain way. So someone listening to the conversation could really benefit from that you know, double confirmation. I was, I was trying to remember in a, a situation where I did this, where I sat back what I understood. Um, and that sometimes can be a bit uncomfortable uh, when you, it, it can sound uh, as if you're challenging the other person to like, um, be more clear or, or maybe the other person will challenge you because you didn't understand, or, or maybe you just feel challenged because you didn't understand. Um, and so there's this there's something here around like being comfortable with this, this curiosity, because this is curiosity for me. Um, yeah. What do you have to say about that? I guess it's like, hmm, I mean, for me, I guess it's also almost automatic now. So I will often say something like, can I play that back to you just to make sure I understand? And then I'll go and say, you said X, did I get that right? I think it's people find it. I've I've had little issues with it. Like people never seem to mind that I take the effort to make sure I understood them correctly. Um, because for me, it's so important that I represent the people's views correctly. Because when I'm go back to my team, I'm now representing their voice, and I have absolutely every responsibility in the world to make sure I got that right. So I I guess for me, I I never feel I guess that that overrides any instinct I have about feeling stupid <laughs> or just like feeling like I'm being challenged or um so for me that duty of making sure I get the right information and the right story is far more part and in <laughs> more important to me so yeah, yeah I guess that's the usual trick I use and I think there's no harm in saying like hey I heard so you, you just said x did I get that right and so what happens next and then you know it it becomes there are ways of making this less of a confrontation I suppose and just you're just clarifying you're just trying to understand so help me understand more the practice is really um emptying yourself and being conscious that you are a listening vessel you're just trying to absorb somebody else's life story or their knowledge I think the moment you are able to do that without being too conscious of yourself 
um, and just focus on somebody else, it, I think it just comes naturally. I really like that. So I have more questions, but I think you've answered all of them. <laughs> you can ask more if you want it to be. <laughs> I, I do have one last question, and this is the question I'm asking all the guests um, because I'm still trying to figure out the answer to the question. So I'm, I'm using, I'm absorbing your knowledge as <laughs> your superpower in this case. Um, and the question is, what is learning for you? Hmm. I had a good long think about that one. Firstly, it's um, not being afraid to fail is very, very important in learning. Um, and then next to that is just that willingness to try new things and just not be afraid of trying something and not having it not work. Um, the, then there is the second half for me, which is something that I, I do say a lot to students I teach and to whenever I run workshops about and teaching people how to you know, do different parts of research. Um, it's not being afraid to continually practice to get good at something. Um, you can, you know, it, I don't, so you know, the, the 10,000 hours thing that um, people talk about that was written up in one of Malcolm Gladwell's book. And there's been a lot of debate about it, but there's no debate about the fact that if you do something more, you get better at it most of the time. Um, so it's not a big, yeah, it's really about not being afraid to keep trying and just do it. For me, that that is the part of learning. I think I already mentioned earlier that reading something is not learning. It's part of learning. Is I think when you read something, you get exposure to it. Um, but it's through the doing that you truly learn. <laughs> if that answers the question. It's great. <laughs> yes, I was thinking about it uh, because I certainly have felt that fear of practicing. Yeah, you read something and you feel like, oh, I got it. But you dip down, you know that you didn't. And to actually to take the step uh, to go practice it and say, yeah, I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, this is uncomfortable. And to keep doing it, although you feel that discomfort. Maybe I can talk about where this comes from. I don't know if this will help. I learned to play music from the age of five. And one of the interesting things for me, so my, uh, my husband is now learning how to play the classical guitar. Mm. And what has been fascinating for me is to see how he learns versus how I thought I learned. So learning music is a very conscious thing. Like when you're learning to try and read music is not something that comes easily to most people. And I did as a child, but I mean, it's, it's really painful. It is learning, it, it is not an easy thing um, because you really have to memorize and you really have to teach your mind to work with your fingers, to know which note to play. And so it's actually a pretty complex learning process. One of the things that I did realize, and that's something that I've taken with me as an adult working in professional life, is that you can read the score, um, and that's already like, if you can read the score, that's already something. Um, and then to be able to play it and play it well, you can only get there through practice. There's just no shortcut. Um, and so people find it funny, but I don't believe in talent. I don't believe in talent. I believe in aptitude, but I don't believe in talent. It, you get good when you put the time in. And so there is something else on top of that. We can get good at learning. So you might not necessarily get good at a skill, but you can get very good at learning your skills. And I guess I can say that with some credibility. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> 
Um, and so for me, I guess, it's, I, 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 a side effect of being a perpetually curious person is that I have learned to learn new skills constantly. And, and this is why I don't believe in talent. Um, anyone can get good at anything if you put your mind to it and put the time into it and just have the will to do it. It does mean that we probably need to put aside some fears about ourselves and about failure and just like pick yourself up. If it's not working, if you're not able to do that thing that day, well, let's try a second time. Make a plan for how you would do it again differently the next time. You know, mm-hmm. your your cake doesn't rise properly. What did you do and what would you change next time? Um, so th- I guess that's just how how we get by and how we get better at things. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, you're welcome. This is a fascinating topic. Um, I'm learning as I'm speaking to you, to be honest with you. So this is brilliant. Great for me too. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you. There's no other way to end this episode but with a question. So here it goes. Which topics would you like us to explore in future episodes? I would love to hear from you. You can do that by going to anchor.fm slash learning day and leave a voice message or reach out through the Instagram link you'll find on that page. If you want to get in touch with Steph, you can find her on LinkedIn. You'll find a link to her profile and to the references she makes on the episode on the show notes. If this episode was useful to you, consider subscribing to Learning Day on your podcast app and, as a little extra, share it with a friend. I don't know where this is going to take us, but I know we're going to learn something along the way. Thank you for listening. See you next time.